The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Ken Dodds, David Black, and John Williams. Ken is a vice president and government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. Prior to to joining Live Oak, uh, Ken spent more than 21 years as an attorney and a member of the SCS uh, at the Small Business Administration. David Black is a partner at Holland & Knight, where he's a co-chair of their National Government Contracts Group. Uh, He provides clients advice in a broad array of industries with an emphasis on innovative technology, professional services, healthcare, and research and development. And John Williams is a partner at Perillo Maza, where his practices focuses on a diverse array of compliance issues, including counseling on federal procurement programs like the Small Businesses 8A program, hub zone programs. He is also part of Perillo Maza's cybersecurity and data privacy team. So guys, welcome to the show. Um, this is kind of our year in review for what all the important events, policy, bid protests, case law with regard to small business programs across the federal government. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation with, um, you know, with you get you subject matter experts. Um, so first, let's just start with the one that uh, I get asked about all the time, and that's the Ultima decision uh, with regard to, you know, the presumption um, of disadvantage in the 8A program. And I'm going to turn to David first to kind of brief the decision, (laughs) and then we'll get into a discussion of it. David? All right. Sounds good. So this is a decision that's uh, thrown a huge wrench in the uh, 8A program uh, and contracting under that program and new applicants into the program um, since the summer. Um, What you had was the the Supreme Court, uh, you know, issued a decision about, uh, you know, kind of uh, using uh, racial classifications in admissions and college admissions. And a district court in Tennessee um, has granted an injunction uh, kind of applying the same reasoning that it, that it violates the equal protection clause of, of, the, the, of the Constitution to, ha- to sort of have presumptions um, that are based on race and national origin in the 8A program. And, you know, the reason this is so important is, you know, to be eligible for the 8A program, uh, you have to show economic disadvantage and uh, social disadvantage. And, uh, you know, the economic disadvantage has certain things um, uh, that applicants have provided information about their net worth, assets, income. Um, and then SBA uh, really for, for decades has been applying a, a presumption of social disadvantage for certain uh, kind of race-based class, um, uh, national origin and things like that, where it did not require applicants to, to make an actual showing of social disadvantage, it was it was presumed. So you have a lot, you have probably, you know, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of, of companies in the program that relied on this, this social, the presumption of social disadvantage. And the district court this summer uh, sort of said that was unconstitutional, and it issued an injunction saying that, you know, basically uh, SBA and, and, and one federal agency and really applies across the government, 
can't proceed with any more 8A contracting where that presumption of social disadvantage has come into play with the eligibility of the companies uh, participating. So what, the, what SBA has done in reaction to this, in response to this, um, is to go back and say, all right, any person admitted to the 8A program who relied on this, this presumption of social disadvantage, and a lot, many did just because it was the uh, straightest and easiest path to get into the program, you now have to submit a social disadvantage narrative. We're basically going to go back and make you submit a you know, you know, fact-based, information-based explanation of your social disadvantage. And this is sort of a detailed narrative that has, you know, multiple episodes of adverse treatment, you know, based based on the, you know, race or national origin that people experienced in their education, um, their employment or their business. And and so SBA has been receiving a flood of these from current 8A uh, participants. And then it, it sort of put the application process for new entrants on hold until it gets catching up with processing all of these uh, social disadvantage narratives. And, you know, SBA's goal is to basically render this, this presumption of so- social disadvantage moot um, so that folks who, who are sort of confirmed that they are eligible for the program, their, their, their narrative gets reviewed, um, SBA stamps it with approval, then you're no longer relying on the presumption of social disadvantage and now you're eligible for future contracts. But, it's clear that companies have had to stop in their tracks and deal with this um, because they, SBA made it clear, you're not eligible for any any new 8A contract, any new 8A sole source task order um, until you have your social disadvantage uh, eligibility uh, confirmed. So that's sort of an overview of the decision yeah, I, um, the impact. I think, yeah, th- thanks, David. That's great. That's a great synopsis of the case. Um and and the ramifications of it. And I guess, Ken, I'm turning to you as a former senior executive at the SBA and just like what went through their process to figure out how to address this or mitigate it. And, you know, what are they dealing with now with regard to, you know, people having to submit the, you know, these narratives and actually the review and all that process. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that, you know, this administration, has set for this fiscal year a goal of 13% for SDBs. And the only way to reach SDBs really is through the 8A program, the sole source and the competitive. There aren't SDB set aside. So this administration very much wants to promote 8A contracting. And so I think they put all hands on deck. They called in district councils around the country um, to uh, get finally get the applications coming again, making sure that everyone has to do a narrative now because before only certain groups had to. And then also, you know, trying to pledge to, if someone wants to get an 8A contract, to try to get that narrative reviewed within five days is, I think, their goal, and has been their goal. And then, then obviously, they're going to have to move on to other companies that aren't getting contracts um, that are in the program based on the social disadvantage, not having to do the narrative uh, to, to get them approved as well. It's important to note that the injunction shouldn't have impacted 80 concerns that got in without the presumption that already did the narrative. And then also what we call entity-owned concerns like ANC, NHO, and tribal concerns, they get into the program not based on social disadvantage narrative. So the concerns about government contract or the 80 program overall may have give, given some agencies pause. 
Right. So but, is there, and I, I mean, stick with you for a second, Ken. So when they're, I'm just trying to think about the, the, the review of the narratives and if there's a criteria or what they're looking for, because it does actually, right. I mean, uh, you know, when David was describing the decision and the presumption versus the narrative, the idea that the, you really are then looking at an individual's experiences in society in a certain sense, each time you're reading a narrative to, to address that presumption. I think that's what I get out of it. Um, so how is the SBA kind of doing that review process? Yeah, that's a good question. They put out some some detailed guidance about what it means um, for people. Um, it's substantial and chronic discrimination in American society, in business history, employment, education. And they put out some guidance to folks on what to, what you can say and what might su- suffice and what might not. But it is a... You know, it's a review. There's no, it's not adversarial. There's no one on the other side saying sure. disputing disputing any assertions. So it's right, and that's some that's some of the concern that the plaintiff has raised by asking for a, a monitor to look at these or to make it public while you know getting rid of personal information but publicizing them. So they, that that issue has been raised by the person or the company that brought this complaint. I think that's a. It's a good question and an interesting uh, aspect of this to be looking at as we continue to live with the fallout of the case. You know, I I mean, I think SBA, from our standpoint, you know, we applaud how quickly they moved on reviewing these narratives in September that the world was really upside down, you know, end of fiscal year spending time and lots of awards ready to be made and, and couldn't move forward, you know, until SBA reviewed these narratives. And I think our experience with clients is that they moved very quickly and they did hit that mark that Ken mentioned. But I think it does raise a question of about the level of review that occurs in five days or less. And what does that mean for the standard that is going to be applied to accepting these narratives? And then is that same standard that was applied in kind of the rush of the end of fiscal year for companies that already were in the program and had awards, is, are we going to see the same standard applied to new applicants, you know, a year from now or, uh, you, you know, uh, companies that are already in the application process, you know, it, it, it is this generally going to result in maybe a, a different approach to approving these narratives, perhaps maybe a little bit more lenient of a standard applied. I, I don't know. That's really the question I'm tossing out and we're, we're looking at, but I, um, you know, I think it, you do wonder a little bit about the standard applied in such a short period of time. And that's probably what the plaintiff is complaining about from, as you mentioned, Ken. Wow. And you know what, guys, we're up on the break. We took, you know, that's how important this decision was. We got went through an entire segment talking about the decision and the ramifications for small disadvantaged businesses and also for the SBA and, and, and customer agencies who utilize those businesses, uh, especially given the, uh, you know, the goal that the Biden administration has for small disadvantages um, 
dollars going to the to prime dollars going to those contractors. So when we come back, we'll we'll shift and get into some of the regulations, maybe some of the bid protest. I think we'll start with the you know looking at some changes to the non-manufacturer rule and GWAC eligibility. Um, my guests today are Ken Dodds from Live Oak Bank. David Black from Holland Knight and John Williams from Perella Maza. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf and Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guests today are Ken Dodds from Live Oak Bank, David Black, who's a partner at Holland and Knight, and John Williams, who is a partner at Perella Maza. And we're talking about the small business policy procurement regulation bid protest year in review. Um, last segment, we talked a lot about the uh, entirely exclusively about the ultimate decision and its impact. Uh, this segment, we're going to start out with um, some other, I guess, boiler room more topics in particular. And first one is there's some been ch- changes the SBA has made with regard to the non-manufacturer rule. And I'm going to turn to John to kick off the discussion of this. John? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, just to kind of level set the non-manufacturer rule is a really key is kind of a arcane or challenging to understand but nevertheless important regulation if you are a reseller in the federal space so you're a small business reseller you don't make the products yourself you have to qualify on set aside contracts under what's called the non-manufacturer rule and there are several elements of this rule but the one that is typically uh, you know, the most challenging to meet and uh, where there's a s- source of a lot of, uh, you know, agita on, on procurements is the requirement that you have to supply a product made by a small business unless the SBA waives that requirement. And if the SBA waives that requirement, then you can supply the product of a large business. And there are two different ways SBA can issue a waiver. They can do it for an entire class of products, which will apply any time the government's acquiring that product, the waiver is in effect, or they can issue it on a contract specific basis. So based on what the government is acquiring in a given contract, the SBA can issue a waiver for that contract. And a couple of months ago, like you mentioned, there, there were some changes in how SBA is approaching contract waivers. And I think that's going to be impactful for a lot of the large GWAC procurements that are coming up where small businesses are reselling like IT products or medical products. And the one that's kind of on our radar right now is the next iteration of the NASA soup contract. So in the past, if SBA issued a contract-specific waiver of the non-manufacturer rule, it applied to the entire contract. So if, the, if the parameters of the waiver were met and SBA issued it, then, it, then that contract uh, has a waiver from the requirement to supply products made by small businesses. But under the new rules, SBA will only issue a contract-specific waiver for specific products in the contract. And when the contracting officer makes a request, they have to make the request for the waiver by product, and then SBA will grant it by product. So they're, you know, gone are the days, I guess, of uh, being able to get a contract specific waiver for the entire contract, unless the contracting officer asks for a waiver for every product 
in the contract. And that's going to be a tall order for procurements like soup, where there are potentially thousands, if not more products available. So there, there is concern right now amongst small business resellers of IT products that it's unclear what NASA's approach is going to be to waivers for the upcoming soup contract. They got kind of lucky on the timing for the current soup contract that the way the SBA rules were at that time, they didn't have to contend with this at all for the current soup contract, or at least that was their interpretation. But now with the next soup contract, they're going to have to contend with this. And so there's a, you know, a lot of uh, discussion right now. And I think some advocacy efforts are taking shape around how we're going to handle waivers for that particular contract. But it's, this is important for all resellers to, to be aware of, not just IT resellers. Ken? Yeah, I think, you know, we all want to have small manufacturers in the United States, for sure. But I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, agencies don't have to request a waiver of the non-manufacturer rule. If there are small manufacturers here, the rule of two says you should buy from them. But if there aren't, they have the option of going full and open or requesting a waiver so the small business can sell the large business product. So my concern is the harder you make it to get these waivers, the less likely people are to use them, which is obviously going to you know, hurt resellers in that sense. So I understand the sentiment. I'm just not sure it's going to have the intended impact that they think it will. Yeah, that's a good point. And I will say that there was another addition to the rules that I think actually could make the process of getting the waivers easier, depending on how SBA interprets it, because this is such a new rule, you know, what we don't know, we haven't seen yet how SBA is going to interpret it. But the, the regulation says that the contracting officer can apply for the waiver for a broad thing. The rule literally says thing. Uh, and it gives an example of like all spare parts for aircraft X. So in other words, they're saying you don't have to identify every spare part. If you tell us that you want a waiver for all spare parts for aircraft X, we can grant the waiver that broadly for all those spare parts. You just can't be so broad as to say something like all IT products. Yeah, that would be too broad. Right. But I think that opens the door to approaching the waivers. Like, for example, all laptop computers manufactured by Hewlett Packard, because obviously there's no small business that makes Hewlett Packard products. Um, something along an approach like that might make it easier for contracting officers on these large procurements like soup to you know, seek waivers for a large swath of products that clearly don't have any small business manufacturers. Right. And John the uh, and Ken, the idea of, um, you know, spare parts, that's kind of product specific, mm-hmm. right? They're spare parts for a particular aircraft. Um, so we'll get, let's move on to another topic. And David, I know there's um, DOD and SBA guidance with regard to JVs. Um, uh, DOD and SBA just last month uh, issued a joint notice on facility clearances. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yep, sure thing. Yeah, so this this is a, the problem with uh, joint ventures, especially mentor-protege joint ventures that have kind of a short, or supposed to have a short life, but, you know, two-year bidding period, and they want to do cleared work. And um, for a long time, it was a real problem because it's difficult for a joint venture to get a clearance, uh, and the members had clearances, and joint ventures were being shut out. So the backstory on this is SBA amended its rules a few years ago to say that the, as long as the individual members had clearances, then the, the joint venture could be eligible. And you know, if the, if the cleared work was primary and vital, the protege had to have the clearance. If the cleared work was ancillary, the mentor. Well, well DOD kind of pushed back on that, and they, they sort of fought it, and they lost a GAO protest, and, and there was just a lot of you know, consternation. And so they issued this memo to kind of clarify. And the, the real driver is, is there's a distinction between joint ventures that are formed as separate legal entities a lot of them are formed as limited liability companies, uh, for example. And there are still some joint ventures that are just agreements. They're joint ventures by contract. And, and uh, the guidance has really said, well, the joint ventures formed by contract, we, we really can't award the, that kind of joint venture contracts directly. The joint venture has to be an entity to get a cleared contract. So if, if, if JVs formed by contract can still bid, but the, the prime contract would be awarded to the individual members who have clearances, um, and we would deal, deal with it that way. But, um, and then at the entity level, again, they've, they've made clear that the, entity, the LLC entity doesn't necessarily have to have the, the facility clearance. Um, it can be awarded a, a prime contract without a facility clearance, but it also said there are times when we might review an LLC entity that's, that's an unpopulated joint venture and want it to have um, a clearance based on, you know, its susceptibility to influence and other very specific factors. So they're not ruling that out. They kind of, you know, reserve the right, but it should be rare. And then, and then they say, and we are going to, we accept the SBA regulation as it applies to joint ventures formed as entities. And, you know, when the primary and vital work is, is cleared, then the protege has to have a, have, the clearance, but the mentor need not if it's not doing any of the cleared work, vice versa. If, if, if the contract doesn't involve the cleared work as primary and vital, if it's ancillary, then only the mentor has to have the clearance and we can manage it. So it's a, they're sort of aligned and clarified how they're going to deal with this SBA regulation. It was a bit like the tail wagging the dog having SBA issue this a few years ago and DOD has sort of come around and explain how it's going to deal with some of the various uh, applications. Not okay. only that, there not only that there was a law that Congress passed that said if both parties, you know, at DOD have have the uh, clearance that you have to accept that. And the reality yeah. is, the way SBA's rules work is, as David mentioned, the joint venture is not populated. It really just flows through, and the work is done by each member according to whatever percentage so that we can make sure the protege is doing the amount of work they're supposed to do and so forth. So as long as the people doing – the companies doing the work have the clearance, it makes sense to not require the shell to get a clearance. It, it's, it didn't make sense. SBA tried to do it by rule, and there was even a law that was passed. Yeah, okay. So we're up on the break, guys. That's, that's a good summary of that. kind of sounds like common sense a little bit prevailed perhaps in that context and when we come back we'll continue our conversation of this the small business year in review my guests today are ken dodds from live oak bank david black from holland and knight and john williams from perilla maza i'm roger walder and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network 
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Ken Dodds from Live Oak Bank, David Black from Holland and Knight, and John Williams from Perillo Maza. And we're talking about uh, small business policy procedure, bid protests, the you know, court cases, just what happened over the course of 2023 and the impact on, on the federal procurement system. And this segment, um, we're going to kick it off by talking about, I guess, some, some case law and some you know, bid protest and that sort of thing. And that's, uh, you know, Ken, apparently there's a split between GAO and uh, Court of Federal Claims on protege past performance. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, the, the Meta-Protege program, we kind of t- touched on it on the earlier segment. Um, the idea behind it was the small business protege doesn't have the past performance experience that it needs to compete for a set-aside contract. So they're going to get a mentor that has that past performance experience, and they're going to joint venture together to compete for contracts. And so what, what SBA's rules basically say is procuring agencies can't hold the protege to the same level of past performance and experience requirements as other small business bidders that are bidding on their own that already have that past performance and, and experience. And so, you know, how, how has that been interpreted as we've gone along? There's been some GAO cases where the agency interpreted that by saying, okay, we want three, let's say $10 million contracts in this particular area as your past performance and experience. The protege has to have a minimum of one and the mentor can have two, you know, so kind of a simple way of, of not holding the protege the same requirements as other small business bidders. And I think there's been several cases where GAO was okay with that and SBA appeared to not object to that. And so I kind of thought we were kind of settled on that's, that's a reasonable, simple way to, to do things. In the Polaris uh, decision that came out of that, that touched on the pricing issue. Um, there was also a section on Menoprose joint venture past performance experience, and it did not agree with the, you know, limiting the examples from a protege and, and a number thing. It basically, the court basically said, you can't even hold the protege to one example of a $10 million contract, for example. It sh- and, it, and the court went on to give a bunch of suggestions on how they might do that. Like, giving extra credit or holding them to a lower standard, like a $5 million contract. Um, And so if you're a procuring agency, you don't have a choice of a forum if you're protested really, right? The the protester can decide to go to GAO or, or court of federal claims. And so, you know, I think this could have the effect of, having agencies start following the the COSI decision and, and going beyond just the simple numerical thing and coming up with all kinds of other ways to evaluate protege past performance. The downside could be that it makes the mentor's past performance even more important. And so we've um, heard complaints in the market that the only way to get on some of these best in class contracts with a scoring system is to have a mentor. And so that leads to questions about, you know, do we want all of these small business set asides contracts to be, you know, perceived to be dominated by uh, large business mentor protege joint ventures? David. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an area of concern that I've heard expressed to SBA and I've heard SBA 
legal counsel indicate that it's something they're looking at. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe in the future we see some adjustments in how mentor-protege JVs are able to compete on these GWACs. I, I've thought maybe the best thing to do is create like a separate track for them so that it's not a zero-sum game between a mentor-protege JV and then just a small business by itself. But there there definitely is a concern, like Ken said, in the marketplace about what it takes to compete and can you really do that for a lot of these vehicles if you're not in a mentor-protege JV relationship. And the other point I'll just make is that this is a great example of the decision you have to make as a protester, because most of the time you do, unlike the agency, have a choice where you file your protest. And there are some other examples. I know we've had some cases involving uh, misrepresentation of key personnel and late proposal submissions, and there are different views of those issues between the court and GAO, just like the circumstance that Ken described. So, you know, there can be a lot of different reasons why you might choose one forum versus the other when you're deciding to file a protest. All right. Go ahead, David. Yeah, I'll just add, a, and between GAO and the court, I, I think the court is the one that got it right. Um, you know, the way they've read this is, is a protege with no experience, should be able to rely entirely on the experience of its mentor. And I, I think I think that's what SBA intended with its reg, whereas GAO was letting agencies still sort of screen out inexperienced protégés by making them have at least one representative example, even though they would have fabulous mentors who, who could you know, totally meet the past performance or experience requirements by themselves. So I, I, again, I think the court is the one that's enforcing this more the way SBA intended by making sure proteges aren't excluded from lack of experience or past performance. But like everyone's observed, you know, we live in a mentor-protege world, and for these big, uh, larger, you know, restricted IDIQs, you know, you, you got it. You basically got to be a, in a in a mentor-protege joint venture to have the experience and past performance the way agencies are doing this see if SBA ever decides to address that, or is this just the best way to get the best value out of the, the set-aside programs? All right. So we have about a minute left, so, David. So let's start, and we want to turn to the next issue, talking about some proposed rules on size and status recertification and protests under multiple board contracts, the full and open multiple board contracts. Can you just we got again about a minute left. Give a yeah, quick. Yeah, I'll set the table. And then we can continue. Yeah, set the table, and we can talk yeah. about it more in the next segment. So this is a, a proposed FAR rule, and it's sort of finally implementing at the FAR level um, a problem that that Congress and SBA have been addressing for several years. And this has to do with unrestricted IDIQ task order contracts, where companies would represent their size at the time of proposal for the contract level. Some that's you know some some of these go on for several years. And then the, the, there are set-aside task orders. And um, until a, a rule in 2020, I'll get to uh, a little more detail when we come back, um, size was determined at the time of contract proposal, and there was no ability to really protest that. Um, and so you had a lot of companies representing a small business being eligible for set-aside task orders for many years and never really being uh, susceptible to a protest by a competitor. Um, and then this rule tried to address that loophole. Maybe I stop there and we come back. 
Sure, we can come back when you can talk about that rule, and then I want to turn, uh, after we discuss that in detail, um, to some cybersecurity considerations and what small businesses need to think about. My guests today are Ken Dodds. He is uh, with Live Oak Bank. David Black is with Holland and Knight, and John Williams with Perillo Mazza. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guests today are Ken Dodds, who is Vice President, Government Contracting Industry Expert at Live Oak Bank, and David Black, who is a partner at Holland and Knight. He co-chairs their National Government Contracts Group. And John Williams is a partner at Perillo Mazza. His practice focuses on a, lots of different compliance issues and extensive counseling and small business compliance programs in particular. Uh, guys, you know, this is, uh, we're continuing or finishing this last segment on our small business year in review. And, I, you know, we're just scratching the surface. There's lots of interesting issues and, and lots of uh, great analysis. And I'm going to turn back to David. David, you started to brief us on the proposed rules with regard to size and status recertification for these full and open, you know, multiple board IDIQ contracts. Um, continue, please. Yes, I sure will. I'll get to the punchline of how uh, SBA kind of closed, closed this loophole. And I'll sort of, you know, this this proposed rule in the FAR is is really a catch-up, what we call kind of a catch-up regulation. This, the small business uh, regulatory process is, is a long and tortured, but SBA gets to go first and they revise their regulations and really, once their regulations are in place, folks follow them. Um, but FAR Part 19 echoes the SBA regulations, and so now we finally have have the FAR uh, Council, you know, catching up and, and revising uh, FAR Part 19 to, to reflect a, a change that went into effect really in November 2020. So this change isn't really new. It's this is about the FAR finally catching up. But it's worth emphasizing because I still have clients that are trying to understand the different rules on certification and protest for task orders under different kinds of of IDIQ contracts. And um, with the this uh, did what SBA did in 2020 and, and is, is catching up here is for unrestricted contracts. Those are ones where anybody full, uh, large and small could bid for, for the IDIQ multiple award task order contract. And then the agency has authority to set aside task orders. And before this rule, if you were represented as small at the unrestricted contract level, you were small for the life of the contract and you didn't have to re-represent your size for a set aside task order unless the contracting officer expressly requested that. And that that's, you know, uncommon. Now, for every set-aside task order under an unrestricted IDIQ, you do have to represent your size and your status. And so folks that have, have sort of sized out, grown, or they no longer meet the status requirements for, you know, SDVOSB or 8A, um, if they can't represent those requirements for that kind of set-aside task order, they're not eligible. So this this has effectively sort of cut down the value of unrestricted um, IDIQ contracts uh, as, as an opportunity for set-aside task orders for companies that have sort of matured beyond those programs. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is uh, SBA uh, carved out the GSA schedules, which is probably the largest of all the unrestricted IDIQ contracts. For, for GSA schedule, if the contracting officer isn't asking for a task order-specific representation, you still rely on the representation you made when you submitted your proposal for the contract or 
uh, at that five-year mark. Every five years, you sort of update your your size and status reps, and you can rely on those. Um, and, and we keep waiting to see if, if those rules might change for the federal supply schedule. They haven't as of yet, and this proposed rule sort of maintains that distinction um, that this is really for non-federal supply schedule uh, unrestricted um, IDIQ contracts. Ken, um, your thoughts on this? Yeah, the reality is uh, when SBA tries to do a rule, you know, it has to go through interagency review before it gets published and finalized. And GSA schedule folks have always been very adamant in protecting their program. And so that's kind of the reality of why it was carved out. It is confusing because people call IDIQ schedules when they're not. And so if you're not a lawyer, you may not know whether your IDIQ is a, is a is part 16 or a part eight. IDIQ. So there is a difference, as, as David mentioned. What I would do if I was an agency, though, is start doing kind of the OASIS model, pool model. You know, if you if you do it unrestricted and try to do all these set-asides, there's going to be protests, and then you might lose, and you have to go back um, of the status and the size. So I would just set up pools, you know, my small pool certify. Then I, then I can just award throughout that. I don't have to get recertification each time. And same with women-owned small business or SDVO. So I think the logical follow-on to this is that you're going to see less and less IDIQs with large and small and doing all these mixtures. But you, you might. And if, if you do, you're going to see these uh, these protests and litigation. Right. It's just another argument to do a, you know, a, a, a set-aside pool like or, or, set, or set of contracts. which Get it done up I, front. Yeah, like like I know GSA is doing on Oasis, um, the Oasis Plus now, and likely you'll see it in some of the other you know contracts that GSA is going to be working on coming up. And let's turn to um, cybersecurity. I'm going to turn to John to talk a little bit about you know sort of the state of play. I know it's a big topic, John, but just <laughs> what, what do what do you think small businesses really need to know or think about um, or issue spot in a certain sense for them? moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the best advice that I could give to small businesses right now is to be aware of the fact that there are already likely several cybersecurity requirements applicable to them in their contracts, both with civilian agencies and also DOD. I think there. You know, there's been a lot of talk about CMMC, you know, over the last, I mean, it's been many years at this point. So those of us that track this, we kind of feel like Paul Revere, except the British are never coming. Um, you know, the CMC, we're still waiting for CMMC. And I think what the effect of that has been for a lot of small businesses that we talk to is to kind of lull them into a false sense of security that we don't really need to do anything on the cyber front until CMMC comes online. And the, the reality is there have been cyber requirements in the FAR, basic requirements, but requirements nonetheless for a while now. And the DOD in particular has been iterating and putting in more extensive requirements over the last several years. So I, we we just don't want small businesses to not be paying attention to what they're obligated to do right now. And increasingly, this is becoming a competitive discriminator, especially when you go after these self-scoring large GWAs right. that we've, as we've been talking about. And so I think the other point I would make is to try to, this is easier said than done because it's not my investment dollars, but 
to to view cybersecurity as an investment in a competitive advantage rather than just purely a compliance requirement because i think there that there really is a way to separate yourself and that will become i think even more important once CMMC actually does come online and, uh, you know, supply chain risk management is a, a concept or a set of requirements adjacent to what we're talking about here. You know, it, it, this, frankly, probably is a contributing factor to what we've heard about the decline in the number of small businesses that are participating in federal procurement. You know, the spending on small businesses may still be going in the right direction, but increasingly it's a smaller number of small businesses getting that spending. And I think it's compliance burdens like what we're talking about here that add to that. I mean, this is just the way the world works. I think if you're in the federal market, you need to be aware of these things and try to turn them into a competitive advantage. Yeah, I think I think I think you're spot on there with the idea that these compliance burdens. So those companies, small businesses who have made the investment, they're there and they're actually, I guess, pro- proportionally getting more dollars than than they otherwise would have been. You know, prior to some of these burdens and what people trying to address them. We got about a minute left. I, I guess I'll turn to Ken real quickly uh, to chime in on. Uh, hub zones and what's going on there, hub zone maps or what uh, in in enforcement. And... Yeah, I think the, the hub zone program at a high level, uh, you have to have 35% of your employees reside in a hub zone. Uh, when it was initially created, it was full-time. Now it's, I think, 40 hours a, a month that the employees have to, to work. I think there's a concern, you know, if you have an IT, IT company, the rules never said that the employees had to be doing IT work, so they could just be doing administrative low-level work. And SBA got wind of some schemes where maybe an individual was a part-time employee for a lot of different hub zones, getting 40 hours a month with each of these different companies to comply without really doing any work. So they're going to try to uh, have more of a requirement that the employee actually do meaningful work. And what that means and how they enforce that We'll, we'll see, and I'm sure they're going to have to do regulations on that. But the the concern from them is that there's not enough uh, meaningful work being done by HubZone employees. Right. All right. Well, that's per- perfect timing. We're up. We're up, it's the end of the show. So I want to thank my guest today, Ken Dodds, who is vice president and government government contracting expert at Live Oak Bank. David Black, who is a partner at Holland and Knight and is co-chair of the National Government Contracts Group. And John Williams, who is a partner at Perillo Maza and focuses a lot on compliance issues and with a particular focus uh, on Perillo Maza's cybersecurity and data privacy team. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.